It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Josh Brown, how many times are you going to be watching Madam Web? I own you and Patterson dying to know. This is not the question I was expecting to start this podcast <laughs> with, but it's perhaps the most perfect question. So thank you, Ewan. I'm going to yeah. see Madam Web so many times that <laughs> Sony can justify a sequel. I'm going to be at least 45% of that thing's a box office revenue because, uh, good Lord, I cannot wait. I think you can wait. I imagine that they'll take, if you take a photo every time you go in a different seat and then you put them all together, it'll be you and the entire audience. <laughs> Being the, being the one man sustaining this entire endeavor. It's not, Listen, I don't know what it is. Over my break, I actually rewatched Venom 1 and Venom 2, <laughs> and they were both better than I originally gave them credit for. Like, they're not good. The Sony uh, universe is obviously just an absolute trash fire. Like, I yeah. saw Morbius in theaters. What Why did you do that? that was. I don't know, man. I was having a breakdown last year. One of that was probably part of it. <laughs> I love like the idea of like you being like Vegeta in the tank, like recovering in Dragon Ball, but you're like what's being plugged into you is like the Sony cinematic universe. Like, yeah, this'll this'll sort him out. Well that's it, man. So I thought I got really interested into it for whatever reason, but I genuinely think those Venom movies are good. But what fascinates me is how short and how many corners Sony cuts with them. Like I absolutely burst out laughing when Venom 2 ended. At the 80-minute mark, like, that thing's 80 minutes. It's had yeah. so much clearly cut out of it. And then I was laughing again when they were in, when they announced that Madam Web was the longest Sony movie at 1 hour 56. Like, these <laughs> things are just, they're just pumped out. They're, like, cut down to oh. the shortest runtime possible. And, I mean, the trailer for Madam Web looked absolutely insane and up my street. And the <laughs> weird marketing with the Dakota Johnson, I'm here for it, man. What the, yeah, what the hell was that? Like, I, I don't, I don't know what we're going for anymore like it's just this thing Madame Web is like throwing together all the various parts of the Spider-Man mythos let's say that Sony are like in control of and I saw a thing where they've cast like another Uncle Ben and there's like a fake Spider-Man in it and I was yeah. like what is this and then like the, the Coach Johnson thing was like doing like a sort of sultry ASMR thing where it's like please go watch it and I'm like okay like what what is this like it's okay. just every marketing whim all at once it's strange man like I love the Sony you know what? The Sony Cinematic Universe uh, of Spider-Man <laughs> characters, which is such the a mouthful, yeah. um, is to me what I wanted the Dark Universe to be. You know, when right. that was first announced and you saw like that cast photo and you knew it was going to be bad, but <laughs> there was something endearingly bad about it. There was something so tin pot about the whole enterprise <laughs> 
that I just kind of was drawn to it. And the Sony mm. universe is that for me, where I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And I can't get angry at it <laughs> until it starts really trying to be a cinematic universe. And what I mean by okay. that is, for instance, the end of Morbius, spoilers, when um, Michael Keaton's vulture suddenly arrives in the universe. And I'm like, oh, now you are getting into territory that I actually like and you might yeah. mess it up. As long <clears> as <throat> for the love of God, don't take it seriously. Literally, literally. As long as you don't take this seriously and you don't incor- incorporate or tarnish things that are actually good, I'm okay with you being in this weird <laughs> um, side pocket universe. In fact, I'm here for it. That that, that thing, in the, we'll move on from Mad Web. I will say this is the entitled part of the podcast, UBP, UBP, UBP. UBP. I'm Scott Tilford, that's Josh Brown filling in for Jules Gill, who's off doing a business yet again. Although the business he's doing is a Warhammer tournament, so if anyone listens to this on Friday, dude's doing some sort of big old Warhammer tournament. He did tell me where it was, I forgot, but it's some <laughs> big thing, and that's where he'll be. Um, but yeah, the Man of Web stuff, in that trailer there's that one line that sort of went viral as being the worst line delivery in quite some time. But if you apply your methodology to it, that's intentionally like naff and crap yeah. and whatever, and they're just kind of having fun with it. So I'm like, maybe, like maybe there's a way for them to just steer all the way into the campness, which I would love them to do. Like, there's a way to absolutely do that. But I feel like I feel like they're taking it too seriously. And then you've got Sony going like, what if we had a multiverse reference in Spider-Man Two, and what if we planned a multiplayer game, and what if we just tried our own Marvel thing? I have such a problem with Sony's handling of Spider-Man, and I, yeah. I'm just I don't like any of it. No, I sort of, I sort of see the danger of that. Absolutely, like, yeah, there is a way for these movies to take themselves way too seriously. <laughs> Morbius definitely suffered from that. Like, in my opinion, that movie wasn't even so bad. It's good. I think Matt Smith's performance errs on that side, but everything else sort of feels like, um, you know, the original Suicide, Suicide Squad movie after oh, yeah. it was recut. It just sort of seems like it's trying a little bit too hard. But with <laughs> Madam Web, that kind of at least from the trailer, seems to fall fall on the right <clears throat> side of, of campy and endearing uh, to me anyway. And I genuinely do like the characters that it is based around, so I'm interested to see how they've been adapted in that sense. But I thought Venom 1 and 2... They're not amazing movies, but they have a lot of heart. Like, you can tell that Tom Hardy at least knows what movie he's making. That's true. And he sort of elevates it, and I hope with Madam Web that the actors know what kind of movie they're making and are able to bring their own personalities to it in a way that elevates the almost certain to be mid material <laughs> you're like the most like up for this movie of anyone that i've seen online or talked to or anything i hope it's worth your time when yeah, it man, yeah it like i'm i'm the most up for it and i'm also mentally ill so what does that say <laughs> to uh, the target audience of this film but it's, you're uh... coming back out the trough my friend you leave <laughs> those things behind um speaking of um, looking forward to things willie Arreas says the legend is back which is very very true with only weeks until final fantasy 7 rebirth will Josh finally play Crisis Core before it comes out? If not, would Scott run an abridged explanation for him? We also had Jack Jingle saying in regards to Final Fantasy Rebirth and asking about hype, he's equally as he's as equally scared as he is excited. I thought we'd use this as a general chat on uh, Final Fantasy because me and you haven't talked about Rebirth since you've came back, or in a few months anyway. Um, I know you sold Crisis Core because you were like, I'm sick of this thing. And uh, yeah. where you are on all the Final Fantasy stuff? Um, in a weird position with it because <laughs> I, actually, I did play Crisis Core, goddammit. You played it. played it. Two hours of it played you. It played me as well. I was like, this is terrible. I would love you to give me an abridged version of that story because I was there for the story, but I just couldn't get over the gameplay. Right. And so, unfortunately, I won't be going back to the game itself, <laughs> but I will be going to you to tell me what I the s- hell happened in the rest the of that. The thing that's like so weird with all this, and it was so weird when they rolled it out, is like, 
Crisis Core is fundamentally an answer to a big plot point in Final Fantasy VII. Like, like everything that Zack does and what Zack is and everything else used to be a reveal. Used to be used to be a whole part of the entire point of Final Fantasy VII and the entire point of the of the main arc of that game. So I don't... And then when they were like, oh, we're going to remaster Final uh, Crisis Core, and we're going to put that out, and then I think on Square's side, or maybe Tatsuya Nomura's side, like the Creative Minds side, they want people to play Crisis Core. So going into Rebirth, you know, for whatever reason, the like the, the extra context kind of thing. It just doesn't make any sense. Because then, like, <laughs> I don't know what story you're then going to do in uh, Seven Rebirth, because you've kind of... Like, you've revealed stuff in the wrong order. Like, it's just this weird thing. So it's like, I don't know how much they want people to know. I guess they ultimately they want people to know the Crisis Core story. But yeah. I'm also on a weird line with it where I don't know what the average person who hasn't played Crisis Core wants to know. And, and I don't know how Rebirth's going to tackle Zack overall. Like, he was in... Uh, integrate as well, like the little DLC story thing they did for Final Fantasy VII Rebirth after the main game, and um, they did another scene including him. And it's so like, okay, you kind of want us to have this like mystery thing of like, what's who's Zach? What's going on? Why is he holding Cloud? And like, what is that? And yeah. I'm like, well, I can answer that right now. Like, I know from the wider Final Fantasy VII story what that is, where it sits in the timeline and everything else. But then the way that they've revealed it and the way that they messed it up or like messed it around, like in a positive way, I guess, at the end of uh, Final Fantasy VII the 2021, that was like a whole thing where they were like, oh, we're changing it all up. And then we're showing you this scene that you're not supposed to see for another 40 odd hours or whatever it is. And I'm just like, I'm so lost on like <laughs> what their intention is with this. Um, and I think my worst case scenario, and I've not I've not mentioned this in a video yet, but like I played um, Final Fantasy VII Ever Crisis, which is like the the loot the loot based gacha game that's on mobile, where they just take every little scene from Final Fantasy VII and put random skins and loot components and microtransactions into it and just monetize the living f out of it, like it's horrible. And so like that thing opens with the mention of a multiverse and says, mm. hey, look, we can get away with all this and all these other variations of this timeline because it's an infinite multiverse. And look, we've got all the Aeroths now earlier on with Cloud in the reactor and like whatever. And I was like, oh, is this all you're doing? Is this all this is? Everyone else is doing multiverse stuff and that's what you guys are doing. You have been for the last few years. I truly hope, and I'm not a religious man, pray to all the gods <laughs> that that is not the reveal that we're actually building to after all this time. Um, so it's a long-winded way of saying that I actually don't want to give you an abridged version of it. Or I can, me and you, I can tell you, but I feel weirdly bad doing it for a mass audience because there should still be something to preserve there about the main story of Final Fantasy VII. And I'm just so lost on what they want people to know. Yeah. Um, and so like, I get like, I, you played a certain chunk of Crisis Core and then kind of dipped out. And ultimately, I guess you didn't get to the, the back third, which is where it ties into Final Fantasy VII and Cloud and everything. And I just, I, I have no idea what the average person would like to know at this point. Other, and maybe they're just going to stick to the main games. It's, yeah, it is so weird to be along for this ride, especially as someone who only has passing knowledge of Final Fantasy VII. I think the original um, remake was interesting because... I reckon that there are some parts of Final Fantasy VII that even if you haven't played it, even if you don't follow the franchise, mm. were sort of ingrained in video game lore. And I'm almost hesitant to even say them now because in a weird way they've now become like relevant spoilers for the next game that's mm. about to come out. But there are a few big beats from that game that, you know, felt so iconic that everyone knew them or at least everyone of a certain age. So yes. playing through the remake even though I only had that tiny amount of knowledge, I still sort of appreciated the way they were 
kind of acknowledging what you expect to happen and circumventing that in certain mm. ways, even if I didn't know the specifics, you know, like who Zach was. I knew how the part he generally played within that story and his mm-hmm. status within that story, let's say, you know, the same thing can apply to Aerith or Cloud or Barrett or whoever, you know? So I thought that was interesting that it kind of still worked on that, not meta level, but that knowing level and subversive level for someone who was a non-fan like me as much as it probably did for you. But at the same time, there are still so many elements of that game that just left me completely puzzled. You know, some characters (laughs) that are introduced towards the end that if you don't have the reference point for, you're just sat there thinking like, Who's this? What? Yeah, when they this? cut, when they cut to Ketchy, and all you see, all you, all you saw, people who don't know Final Fantasy, is just a little cat with a crown on. Like yeah. that's that's a very like to me, like oh my god, it's Ketchy, but like sure, like that's like that's a whole thing. Absolutely. So I have no idea where the game is going next. Like I didn't realize how much of the original Final Fantasy VII wasn't set in Midgard. You mm. know, so I I genuinely don't. I know again some of the beats towards the end, but I don't know how we get there. I don't know how we're supposed to get there. Don't know which character. <laughs> is supposed to live or die that kind of thing so going into the sequel i'm up for that kind of craziness and that mm. kind of high conceptedness of it mm-hmm. but at the same time um for as much as i loved final fantasy 7 remake initially since playing 16 and since dabbling into crisis core me personally i always seem to have a major drawback with these games like there's right. there's a ha- parts of them that I adore and love and think of fondly, but the experience as a whole often has drawbacks. That was certainly the case for 16 in terms of some of its combat, some of its um, side quests, and that was certainly the case for 7 when you got towards the filler oh, God, yeah. padding towards the end. So I'm, I'm up for it, but I'm also more hesitant than I was going into 16 because I'm expecting those roadblocks again, and I just, I hope they're not there. I hope they can give me a complete experience um, this time around. Yeah, the way that they're handling it, where, like, you had, like, all of what they called Final Fantasy VII Remake was just Midgar, which is, like, ultimately, like, the first sort of fifth of the game. And then you, back in the 90s, when we first played through Final Fantasy, it was, like, this whole reveal of the, the world map. And, oh, my God, there's so much more to this game. Um, and some of that, like, their reaction to that was because, like, people didn't keep up with games as much. Like, unless you were buying a magazine or something. It's not like you weren't online. So, like, that was a whole reveal. And I like that they've tried to replicate that. But at the same time, it, it, like you said, it was such a... They had to put so much filler in the 2021 just to try and like give you a full game's worth and for me like yeah they remixed the story so much in regards to bringing Sephiroth in much earlier um, and like that Sephiroth used to be a mystery like but obviously now Final Fantasy 7 is the Sephiroth cloud story so we just led with that um, and Tetsuya Nomura and the various staff were saying like look we need to that is what Final Fantasy 7 is and people will be expecting that and I'm like I was always like nah like if you were remaking Jaws you wouldn't have him in the opening scene or something you're still <laughs> supposed to re- build to that that's the whole point but um, whatever like yeah I guess we'll, we'll see how that stuff shakes out I'm I'm just weird with it at the minute. Like, I, I, I appreciate how much they've done. Um, and I like the footage that they've shown and how massive the open world is because the the world map is literally an entire world with multiple continents in the PS1 one. And so it's like you need to make a whole world work, you know, and render it properly and everything else. And they always used to say, like, there's too much game to remake. That's why we're not going to do it. And so once they embarked on this, I was like, how are you going to convey the idea of actually going from a west from the west to the east online? Uh, sorry, in, yeah. uh, in a new version kind of thing. Um, but I guess we'll see. I do think it's peculiar as well, at least for me as someone who, you know, was there when the remake was announced and got excited mm. about finally being able to 
um, play this story that everyone had talked about so much. Now that I know the reality of that is that the game is going to be split over three different games Mm. and over the course of what, let's say it was four years from announcement to release, then it was another four years um, between the first part and this part, and let's say there's another four years. That's like 12 (laughs) years. It feels like a big investment. It's not the... um, like sort of instant gratification, I suppose I was expecting from being able to finally experience this universe. Mm. Now it's this epic saga that's going to take such a big chunk of my life. And I wonder (laughs) whether that's going to impact the momentum of the remake project as a whole, or whether that changes people's opinions on it, because it kind Mm. of changes mine and it kind of sets my expectations differently. It's just, um, it's, it's an ambitious thing to do, but it's a almost like an untested thing to do. I can't remember ever having a remake project um, span this massive amount of time when no. all things are co- considered. No, well, well, no game's ever meant as much to a publisher as Final Fantasy VII to Square Enix. Like, it's the, it's the game that made them global. Like, there's... I mean, you cannot, people love six, but seven was, like, industry-changing. And it's like, they put it off for so long, the idea of revisiting this thing. And then now they've got this big three-game project. Like, Advent Children's back in cinemas for a little bit. Like, they've got all this stuff where it's, like I said, Ever Crisis is the gacha game and everything. Um, and it's just... We know how money-grubby Square Enix are and how bad they are at cooking the books. Like, they lean so much on Final Fantasy to make up the the costs, uh, the amount of money that they lose on things. Um, and I forget the name of their new uh, president, but he was all he is all in on monetization and like um, you know putting as much as many of those predatory methods into games as possible. The way he talks seems to be that he would like to do more of that. Yeah. Um, and I kind of fear for the idea of at the heart of it, just this nice little RPG that was released in 1997 or whatever that a lot of people love, not sustaining an entire company for like almost 10 years like you said it's just it's a weird reality to to do it this way but we'll see what happens with it um <laughs> question from amy rapier who says who is your favorite ever gaming news editor outside very carefully is she outside is she got a laser trained on it well Answer very carefully guys nobody else has ever um made our head mugs when we're doing a little mug pun so it's gonna be amy rapier I did. I had a dream about Amy the other night that I was chasing her around Newcastle, trying to give her um, a sprite um, because I owed her a sprite and I couldn't find her. So um, she's just running uh, around Newcastle, hoping that you turn a corner and she'd be right there. That's yeah, that's, that's the end pretty of your much it. Yeah, yeah, just mission. being like, oh, I, I forgot, I've got this sprite that you left me. He, here is it. Dreams are weird, man. Dreams are strange. They are a bit. Shout out to Amy Rapier, though. Massive love to you, fam. Hope you're doing very well. Question from Jack Asbury, who says, UBP, UBP, UBP. We've been spoiled recently by the quality of the podcast going out over the last few weeks. I'm just wondering how you guys decide what to talk about each week or week on week, especially in quiet news cycles. Keep on going, lads. The quality is superb. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very um, much. Whatever comes to mind, to be honest. It's <laughs> rare that we plan more than the day itself, but I don't know if you had any thoughts on this. I, th- I think, you know... You know, sometimes we we initially um, try to do news every day, news yeah. videos every day. I remember when we tried to put that into practice and we realized that it, there was never just enough news to do it, mm. like, every day reliably. Like, there was always stuff happening, but never something big enough to kind of justify its own video. So when we moved to three podcasts a week, I remember, even though I'm only in two of them, of course, apart from when <laughs> Jules is doing a business, um, <laughs> I remember thinking, like, how are we going to be able to fill that time long term? Mm. And yet, weirdly, it actually comes strangely naturally. I think we have way more freedom with the podcast than we do on videos in terms of 
not having to justify them as much in terms of you know views or finding oh, yeah. a, a new story that's big enough. So I actually think it's become like a really cool space to talk about those new stories, uh, smaller new stories alongside the bigger ones that otherwise maybe wouldn't be able to get their dedicated video or talk about games that we maybe wouldn't have enough time to make a video on and then discuss mm. them here because they're not as well known or whatever. So I think the the YouTube side of it and the podcast side actually kind of balance themselves out quite nicely. I don't know how you think about that, Scott, but obviously, you know, you've got the UBP. That's a community-driven podcast, so yeah. we're very fortunate. I'm sure you would agree to have so many cool people like like yourself, Jack, like everyone else who's asked a question today that we might not get to, you know, to have that support, have those questions coming in. You know, we've mm -hmm. got yourself and I, Scott, who are always playing things. So we've got that Monday slot covered because there's usually something we've been playing we want to talk about alongside the news. And then the Wednesday podcast kind of works as a, a legacy podcast in a way where we take more sometimes timeless um, topics or questions and try to answer them or, you know, do a big spoiler cast on a new re newly released game and go an hour and a half. So there's always enough, I think. And I think enough, yeah. more importantly, perhaps, enough enthusiasm for everyone doing it. Not just me, you, Jules, but, you know, like I said the <clears> other <throat> week, Ewan, uh, Stevie, Strawn, um, Cy, anyone else who kind of wants to jump in, Dan, Joe, like everyone has all of these ideas and it's just, uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm for the podcast, which makes it surprisingly easy to do, I find. Yeah, man. The best thing I always loved about podcasts is that it's the conversations we already have anyway. How many times every day are we like, we should save this for the podcast? Like if, yeah. if we're playing something, if we're keeping up with the gaming news, like it just is what we would be talking about anyway. And I always think the best podcasts are the ones where it feels like that. It should feel like a natural conversation. It should feel like the thing that the people want to talk about. Um, and like, yeah, sometimes there are like certain things that work better, like as little packages on like YouTube is such a weird beast. Like it's something that we've obviously been with since like 2012, 2013-ish when the channel started. Um, and you get used to what will kind of work as like a more sharp, like punchier thing on YouTube. Um, I really liked actually the response to the um, the little chunks that we put out, the discussion videos on PlayStation and Xbox that went out like last week or earlier this week. One of the two, Times of Flat Circle. But still, they did really, really well. And that was like a longer form thing. And like YouTube's kind of morphing into longer form stuff anyway. Like you might have seen us doing some compilation videos and longer stuff because that just is what people um, are responding to. And like YouTube wants to put more stuff on TV and everything. But like it is still like it is like a beast to wrangle. And like there's a there's a way to do a YouTube video that is like fundamentally different to a discussion. Like there's a as the, there's a um, more natural approach to conversation that just suits podcasts. And I think me and you, it's like I said, it's the conversation we would be having anyway. Um, and so I always love that. But yeah, in terms of like choosing what to go for, it's just, I mean, there is like a, a there's a knack to it, like in terms yeah. of something that's, okay, this is a big enough story. This is worth doing a video on. This is worth dissecting in a podcast. And then we kind of just keep that middle slot as like, yeah, like a spoiler cast or um, like a general middle thing. That, that's been going for the longest time. Like when the podcast started, it was like, almost more philosophical stuff I thought mm -hmm. of. I was just like, in the angle for it, I was just like, um, you know, certain approaches to level design or why we hate difficulty or love difficulty or whatever. Um, a lot of those older ones were like that. And then, um, yeah, over time, we like settled into this three a week thing and then they have their own different approaches. So like, um, it's kind of just what feels natural and then going off people's responses like we can see the amount of listens for things spoiler casts are always something where a fraction of the audience are going to have played that game yeah but it's a conversation we would have had anyway so rather than do it on our lunch break we'll do it for the podcast that's it right and i like that um this gives us i remember the first time i thought okay this podcast is a lovely little corner <laughs> that we have for ourselves was when we did i think it was an entire podcast on 
12 minutes. Can you remember that game? Oh, that game, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, like, that dropped a few years ago. And we did, like, we managed to go, like, I don't know, quite long on just that one game. And we did, like, a deep dive into it. And that was when I thought, yeah, I, I love doing the pods because it gives us the opportunity to do that without necessarily the added pressure of, um, oh, is this going to do as well to justify it? Like, am I going to have to... Uh, yeah to kind of like pitch this or anything like we have yeah. a little bit more freedom in that regard and, and even without that like you were saying yeah on the Monday podcast especially I just use that as a catch up with you like you know what I mean it's <laughs> like what, what's Scott been playing what's Scott been up to how's he feeling what's, what's, what's the crack you know and um, you know, sometimes I even forget that it actually goes out to people and people <laughs> enjoy that as well because I enjoy it a lot but um, I, I love the one the only, the only um... it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss before we go any further i want to talk to you about today's sponsor masterclass with the amount of time we spend discussing and analyzing video games on this channel it's always good to understand exactly how these experiences are put together and fortunately for me i can do just that with Masterclass. With Masterclass's streaming service, you can learn from the best to become your best, studying and growing with over 200 plus of the world's leading instructors. For me, I've been having a blast using a class on video game design by The Sims creator Will Wright to find out exactly how game mechanics are designed around player psychology as well as learning how important playtesting is to shipping the titles that you and I both love. But it hasn't stopped there, as I've also been brushing up on my practical filmmaking skills directly from my favourite movie director Martin Scorsese, as well as trying to get back in the cooking game with Roy Choi's amazing course on intuitive cooking. Seriously, my kitchen is a mess, but my belly has never been more grateful. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to courses on your phone, computer, smart TV, or even via audio-only modes. Even better, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and 88% of members feel that the service has made a positive impact on their lives. And to put the cherry on top of that cake, right now, What Culture Gaming listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com forward slash gaming. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash gaming. What's that? You want it one more time? Well, that's the URL masterclass.com forward slash gaming. Right, now I'm going to watch Tony Hawk try to teach me how to ollie properly. I'll see you all soon. Not issue, not certainly not argument, but the only time it becomes difficult for me personally to choose a topic when we're kind of like, you know, discussing what to cover that week is, is I'm often in my head about repeating myself. 
Mm. You know, we do so much content. We do three podcasts a week. We do the news. We do chatty faces. We do lists. We do all of this stuff. And I think the only time that I recall that we've ever, I've ever pushed back against something that you've suggested, for instance, is when I've gone, oh, I don't want to repeat myself. You know what I mean? I feel yeah, like I've totally. already said everything I've had to say about that um, topic and all that subject or whatever. But I, I think we do a good job of hopefully trying to avoid that. And you have, I have to kind of remind myself that, yeah, of course, not everyone listens to every single podcast. So, you know, you <laughs> have to repeat yourself to a certain degree. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm aware of that. And I try to, I'm, I'm hope, I'm trying to, um, make it so that I don't repeat myself as much uh, so that people aren't just hearing the same opinions over and over again because I don't want to be that guy at a party who just uh, you know relays the same stories every <laughs> single time you see them so hopefully no. it's, it maintains a bit of freshness I, 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 I hope yeah man I know what you mean well we've, we've tried to do like a new kind of approach to stuff where it's like if it's multiple things that we would talk about and they can work as a news we'll just do them as like a long form thing and we'll record it in the podcast studio chop it up put that out on YouTube so that is the one conversation whereas in the past we would be thinking of the, the platform mentality and be like okay YouTube is looking for this so we'll package it this way and then a podcast is going to be more like this but we really want to pick this particular subject matter apart twice so we'll do the YouTube version and then the podcast version and you can't help but have some overlap it's just the reality of working in this business over time and like the weird way that um different platforms dominate over time but like yeah i uh, i always we always know what's worth kind of covering ourselves because we've just been doing this for so long like i'm in my 11th year i think you're in like your ninth year or something yeah like we've been going a long time especially in this particular line of work it's uh it is rare to have a, a working relationship like a creative relationship for that long and so um at some point you just kind of know what's worth covering um question from josh sloan who says great to have josh back curious to hear his thoughts on how games can positively or negatively impact impact mental health that's a good question it's a meaty question isn't oh, it from a fellow josh as well you love to see it i tell you what uh, you summoned all the joshes we've got a whole bunch of joshes in really the shout out to the joshes well first off thank you uh for your very kind um <laughs> words at the start of there and thank everyone else uh, I, I had a quick quick blast over the some of the questions this morning and they were all very nice to you're saying things like, oh, welcome back, Josh. I'm, I'm rambling now. I get, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm, I'm very embarrassed by it. He's but, a lovely, uh, lovely man, and I'm loving having him back. Thank you yet again. Um, no, it's an interesting question, that, because um, it's actually one that I was thinking about a lot last year for obvious reasons, you know, because for the longest time, I've mentioned this on podcasts that we did over the pandemic, especially, you know, video games for me can be a huge boost to my mental health because mm. they're the only piece of art or they're the the only hobby that I can do personally that um, engages all of my brain in a way that I find completely distracting from life if that makes sense (laughs) so for instance if I'm watching a movie while I'm having a bad mental health period if I'm watching a tv show if I'm trying to read a book or sometimes even listen to music um, I'm not even really engaging with what I've got on because I'm still preoccupied with my own thoughts for instance but gaming for me is a way to kind of for a for a small amount of time give my brain totally over to something else you know if I'm playing Call of Duty Warzone I'm not thinking about Call of Duty Warzone and you know the regrets that I have in life you know what I mean it's all Call of Duty Warzone it's all about killing that guy it's all about where am I going to drop next so in that respect games have been a big help for me but at the same time, I do, I've started to notice like an almost double edgedness to that because over the past year, I kind of realized I was using that escape for me personally a little bit too much and I was leaning mm. on it a little bit too much to the negligence of 
my own health or my own um, responsibilities, you know. I remember the first two weeks that I had off um, from what culture, I Starfield was out and I yeah. played essentially 80 hours of Starfield across that like week and a half period to the point where I was like, I was getting up, I was just playing it all day through to like three in the morning, getting no sleep, you know, not really looking after myself. And it was because I, as much as I was enjoying the game, I didn't want to think about, oh, you're yeah. off, you need to do some, you, you know, this is your opportunity to, to go to the doctors. You need to make some progress on yourself. You know what I mean? The pressure mm-hmm. of that was so overwhelming that I kind of lost myself in Starfield in that regard. And I've done that a few times over the years where I've just, to the detriment sometimes of, like I said, my routine or health or whatever have just like thrown myself into a game in a way that i do think is a little bit unhealthy so i've been trying to manage that over the past few months and whatnot and that's been interesting because i used to view games as like this lovely escape and and now i'm realizing that i'm almost using that in a in a a vice like way as if like i don't want to compare it to you know alcohol or whatever but if i'd used that in the past like going out with my friends drinking a lot you know it kind of in a strange way, had a similar um, impact on me as that. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think games can be both good, but for me personally, this might not be reflective of anyone else. Um, I have to be aware of how much I'm in, indulging in them as a... What would I describe it? As as an as a almost piece of medication, you know? If I'm viewing mm. them in that lens, it can become a little bit dangerous for me personally, honestly. Yeah, man. I, the way you put that with the... Because um, I've always thought of the distinction between like passive entertainment and active entertainment. It's why I always preferred... Overall, I'll take a video game over a TV show, a movie, whatever else, because I, I am fully invested in it. But the way you phrased that like completely crystallizes my thoughts on it. And it, the, yeah, like I love that we have that term of like, oh, you want to get in like a bubble with something. You're bubbling with a certain franchise. I'm going to play all of it in one big go. But it's true. Like it, it is too easy. Obviously, video games, especially now, are designed to keep your attention. Like we talk so much about like gameplay loops and the addictive nature of them and it's like rooting you to the spot one more level one more run whatever it is and like yeah like you need to be aware of the other side of it which i think like only when you get a bit older and you've lived with video games for this long and you do the self-reflection and you think back on the um, various games that you did put that much time into that you realize the negative side of it even though at the time it was completely what was right for you at the time yeah and it's like um i yeah i definitely think back on that stuff and like i very much i think me and you've talked about it maybe i talked talked about it with jules or something um but i was bullied loads in first school and middle school like i mean i always had friends or other social circle but for whatever reason it was just having to deal deal with bullies and everything and i always thought that was why i escaped to video games so much because they give you agency they give you power in scenarios um they give you meaning and purpose and agency and everything and um and i always thought that was only retrospectively that i think about that as i got older where i was like i needed all that stuff people always talk about albums that got them through high school or certain yeah. lyrics certain messagings thematics whatever it is that they resonated with and i think mine was just being able to get a level of agency that i didn't feel i had in real life so i think that is a huge positive um but uh, yeah it is always worth knowing when you've sat for too long, knowing when you're pushing off the, putting 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 off life's responsibilities. I always kind of, I'm a big balance guy. Yeah. I love a yin-yang symbol. I always have. And I love all that stuff. So it's like, if I'm going to dedicate the day to sitting and playing a game, I better make sure everything else is in line first. Or I better take a break and make sure all that stuff is in line. And it can be as simple as just making sure the dishes are done. Yeah, but it does yeah. mean that your overall, um, you know, that your surroundings are uh, as, as most in balance as they can be. I think the word you use there, agency, is really important in terms of, yeah, I, I 
fully agree with that. You know, I hope that came through with what I was saying there, like that totally. level of control you get over video games, the way it engages your brain in that way. It's uh, it's it can be magic. You know, it can be it can be incredible. Um, it mm -hmm. can be so useful, so affirming, and so genuinely life saving in certain ways. But um, yeah. So I guess for me, it's like. It's not, I'm not saying that you can't have like days where you just spend 10 hours playing a game. Like I've done that. It's been incredible. It's been exactly <laughs> what I needed. It's yeah. just, there's a, I've, I've, I'm starting to slowly um, realize that there's like a distinction between those days where I can just, you know, leave all my responsibilities behind um, spend 10 hours blasting through an RPG and having a really relaxing and um, reinvigorating rest day compared to the days where I'm doing that exact same thing for potentially the wrong reasons to ignore the stuff that um, I should be addressing or to put my or doing that to then wake up the next day and put myself in almost a disadvantage because oh I've not done I've not had any food oh, I've not done the dishes oh yeah, yeah like you know what I mean I've, I've, I've ignored um, my life to like the detriment of it um, it's a it's a real fine line and one that I actually wasn't very aware of until this past mm. year where I started thinking about it and interrogating why I was playing stuff but it's uh, mm. it's interesting and obviously it's going to change for everyone but yeah that was that's my experience with it anyway yeah man I would only echo that I think as well on my side like obviously like learning I'm going to be a dad is like a huge thing that's <clears throat> very much like helped separate a lot of the what's worth putting my time into, my energy into, how much I'm distracting myself with video games, how much of my life is video games. Like, um, shout out to Tom Talks Rubbish, who's a, 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 a YouTube channel, and we did a couple of interviews with him. And I remember him asking me, like, oh, have you ever taken a break from video games, like, across your entire life? And I, no one's ever asked me that before. But the answer was no. I was like, no, I've always just gone hard with video games. Like I said, it was very much born out of um, all the bullying stuff and how I felt when I was younger and everything. But, like, diving into the Master System and then Mega Drive and then everything from then on in, I always loved it. I've never really given it up. It's always the thing that I go to every day um, for hours and hours and hours. Um, but not in like a toxic avoiding the world way, but it just is the thing I do. Like yeah. it just it just is. Um, along, I mean, it's one of the things I do. I was going to say like alongside playing guitar, watching movies, you know, whatever. Um, having a wife, but still like, you know, having a, a good life alongside. But it is that balanced thing. And like, yeah, really realizing I'm going to be a dad and being like, okay, that's going to impact a lot of stuff. But I'm so ready for it. That realization, like, I felt my um, my child kick last week for the first time. That was the one of the best feelings in the world. Like, that is un indescribably life affirming. And like, no, this is what matters. Yeah. Like, this is the thing. This is what you want. This is what it's supposed to feel like to be human. And I'm like, okay, cool. I, I get it. Like, you know, he's knocking. He's ready to come out. I get it. And um, <clears throat> it's moments like that that I think you like. You kind of do need that separation thing of like realizing that getting lost in, a, in a, another world in an escapist uh, art form for a day is like a tool to help you with the bigger stuff. Yeah. Like it's it's using it that way. Um, I think that's almost the, the end game or the ultimate point of the balance side of it anyway. No, that's a great point. I can only echo that for sure. Like, yeah, it is. it can be great, but it can only ever be like a band-aid. It can only ever be like a plaster. Mm -hmm. Like it's not going to be like a, a, a permanent solution. It's a nice little... Um, almost cold and flu tablet when you're feeling like a little bit poorly, but it's yeah. not gonna, you know, like fi fix the car issues. And like, if you lean on it too much, like I did, 
definitely you can be i think we all i mean i definitely did too i think everybody does it's very easy to do that um i wanted to shout out um uh, i always remember the dude's surname it's shabilsky but i think it's andre shabilsky did a whole um like a breakdown of gameplay loops i remember the first time i read that i did a whole university thing on it It was more than 10 years ago but i love that realization of like oh okay i get how these addictive loops work there's a whole thing about how different games have various loops at the same time some of them take longer to close some of them have smaller ones within that loop and like that's how we get satisfaction out of video games and there is a whole um philosophy uh psychological element to that that once you're aware of it you can see it really overtly with suicide squad because they're literally visualizing it but um some games are more subtle with it and that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad but it's being aware of the way you're being played as well to kind of make it cheesy but that literally is what it is no it is and you know it's not just video games there's a bunch of other things in our you know modern world like your phone for instance you know i turned off social media while i was away and it was so um strangely relieving to not just find myself it wasn't that i was like looking at things that were like making me sad or anything it was just like Mm. the habits that i'd gotten myself into like why was i spending so much of the day just clicking Twitter, not even reading anything, and just like scrolling down to see if there were any new posts. I remember Michael Hamflet used to describe uh, Twitter as like the ultimate slot machine. Like you go on, <laughs> you you scroll your thumb down, you look at the little thing loading, and you're like, what am I going to get? Is it going to be a right. jackpot? Is it going to be nothing? And I thought, that is such a strange habit to get in, and I became so aware of it that I was, you know, I'm, I'm not doing it perfectly. I still go on Twitter now and again to just see what's happening. Did it a lot when Big Brother was on, to be honest. Like to keep up with the discourse of that. Um, but You want to watch The Traitors, mate. That's what you want to watch. <laughs> ABC's The Traitors is brilliant. Yeah. Oh, I do, I really do. I really want to watch The Traitors. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just another thing where I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just, I'm noticing these habits and trying to interrogate why am I doing them? What am I getting from that? Like, is that a productive mm. use of my time? And, and why have I been conditioned to think that is something I need to do every five minutes, you know? So it's definitely mm-hmm. those, it's not just in games, but it's sort of like a, the psychology of the modern times. Yeah, well, I, I love all that stuff. Like, give me give me all the psychological, philosophical conversations. Like, I love all that stuff. Why we think the way we do, like different, um, you know, habits that you can get into, different thought processes and whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, just to, to round that out on social media. I think the key, for me, the key word's been curation. Like, just saying, I, show me less of this. Show me more of this. I'll, I'll like this thing. I'll, I'll not even interact with this other thing. And just curating your feed. Because I think if you leave it up to the algorithms, they will just barf all over you. You will get the worst possible stuff because negativity does engage again that's a youtube is a beast thing um or you can delve into the the human side of it i remember it's such a weird tangent um delving into that when i did um i did a whole thesis thing in uni university on like violence in video games why do we like playable violence interactive violence and delving into like gladiators and um coliseums and watching people actually get killed and like when hangings were a thing and it's like there's a weird thing in humans with viscera and there's a weird connection to blood gore and guts and everything that's inside us and there's a thing there that is um weirdly alluring to a lot of people especially when you then make it um, playable and then you calibrate a video game to make that satisfying there's something there that is inherently um engaging and it's like that's like a fascinating thing we kind of are drawn to like the the macabre in a way. And I think like some of that comes through in the social media stuff. Like, look at this effed up thing that you would never have seen unless you let an algorithm serve you it up. It's like, you kind of need to be on that and be like, I'm going to curate this so I don't yeah. see the the horrible, horrible thing that I would never want to have seen in the first place. Um, so there's a lot of that. Question from Josh Youngman. Another Josh, Josh. my friend. 
coming all the way in. It's great to hear Josh back on the pods. It's great to hear all the Joshes out there. Thank Hope you. 2024 is a great year for both of you. I want to ask what your favorite song from last year was. Mine was Boy Genius's cover of You're Still the One from their live <laughs> lounge. That's a pick. That was a pick, my friend. What a pick. I was listening to that <laughs> last night after I got in from the cinema. What a shout. That is great. Shout. Um, you know what? It's a difficult one. While we speak, I'm going to get me top songs up on Spotify because... See, my if we're talking last year's music while you bring that up, it's yeah. entirely Sleep Token for me. I couldn't couldn't escape um, just playing Sleep Token's album over and over and over again. Um, specifically, it was The Summoning. That was the first single off that album. Um, that was the one that got me like massively into them. I already had listened to the previous two albums, but like like a lot of people kind of like realized Sleep Token was it. And it was like, okay, these guys are like doing something that is such a mix of like sludgy metal and like trap beats. And then like, there's just everything is in there. Um, and I absolutely adore Sleep Token. I haven't seen them live yet, um, but they were brilliant. I would like shout out, like, Bring Me the Horizon. I saw Bring the Horizon live the other night. And like, they did like their new singles. And um, they had like a year of singles last year where it was like Lost. And I think Dark Side was last year as well. Um, so they would be up there too. But I think if I was going to just shout out a single song, it's The Summoning by Sleep Token. And if you haven't heard it, Go check out that song. I need to get into them, man, because you played them um, <laughs> quite often in the office mm. last year, but obviously not necessarily the environment to properly take in the music. <laughs> um, and then at the end of the year, I got a message from my trusted music advisor, Adam Nicholas, who said like... <laughs> oh, he discovered them last year as yeah, well. Yeah, he said, I finally got into this sleep token business and it absolutely rules. So I'm, I need oh, to man, give them he, a go for sure. Super quick, when he messaged me and he was like, I know he was like, I know you're a fan of this band. He's like, let's talk about sleep token. I, was like, I couldn't have got a better message all year long for them, other than realizing <laughs> I'm going to be a dad, but near enough. It was, <laughs> it was like, yeah, let's talk about sleep token. Um, yeah, they sometimes they take a little while to click. Um, Vessel, the lead dude's vocals are a little bit, not what you'd expect from like a, a metal tinged band or a band described as hard rock or heavy metal or whatever. And it's not like they are that genre entirely. They're very much their own thing. But I would um, I would say check out their, their uh, most recent album. I would say just check out The Summoning. That has everything nice. that they do in one song. It's awesome. I'm going to steal uh, Josh's idea because I think <laughs> maybe, if not my favorite album of last year, but the one I listened to the most was definitely the Boy Genius um, The mm. Record LP. And the song Cool About It, I think, was definitely the song of... 2023 for me i thought that was like an incredible just melodic touching little song that perfectly encapsulates what boy genius is all about i love the last verse i think it's phoebe bridges where she's talking about and um, well she's thinking about like walking home with someone and mm. like choosing to not ask them about what's really going on with them and it's almost like she says you know like 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 that like that she's practicing method acting by doing it because they both know something's wrong but they both kind of subtly agree to not acknowledge it and that's right. going to be fine but they're still worrying about each other and whatnot that just whole song is great i loved them mm-hmm. um, their spanish love songs had an excellent album last year i love the song clean up crew that was on repeat all the time um strange weather by slaughter beach dog absolutely yes excellent and probably um a&w off the new lana del rey album which i loved in totality i thought that was a great song i loved the grants off there there were a lot mm-hmm. of there's a, there's a there was a lot of good music last year scott um <laughs> I, I know that's more much more than one but those are the ones that come to mind because i normally do every year like my top songs but i didn't this year so mm. i've just had to rely on the old spotify rap there but those are definitely definitely ones that um define my 2023 
Mm-hmm. It was funny when when they when Spotify did their rap thing and it was like it's all Sleep Token. Like my top <laughs> five was just here's five songs of the Sleep Token album. Even though I do try and listen to a quite a wide variety of stuff. Um, yeah, for me it's definitely just going to be Sleep Token all the way. Question from Bam who says, "Good day, lads. Loving the healthy helping of Josh Brown since his triumphant return. Which game currently stick? Sorry, sorry, currently stuck in development hell? Do you think is never actually releasing? Also, if you could choose one, which cancelled game would you resurrect?" Ooh. I have specific I have immediate stuff first yeah go on um, game stuck in development hell that's never actually releasing Perfect Dark I, I don't I just the, the stories about that thing restarting development like four times loads of the team have left the, um, I forget who wrote up the most recent report saying it's it's like 20 people trying to make that thing work um, and it seems they, they, which is a, I should probably clarify if people don't know Perfect Dark was an N64 game they're rebooting it um, it's an Xbox exclusive and a, a new studio was made to try and get that thing over the finish line and apparently it's been very hard to nail down what the playability of that game the way it's going to play it was a first person franchise back in the day um, and same with the Perfect Dark follow up on Xbox 360 but apparently it's very hard to make that thing work so my shout would be Perfect Dark and then in terms of a cancelled game I'd resurrect um, the Legacy of Kane game we never got Dead Sun oh, yeah. um, just because I think that would have at least kept the franchise going in a way that Nosgoth didn't and um, and I love Legacy of Kane and it's like I would only want it if Amy Hennig or the other uh, core creatives wanted to do it but um, Dead Sun had some really cool gameplay ideas using the whole dual world thing, uh, reality and the spirit realm and everything. And um, I just think Legacy of Kin should be a fixture of our lives in the yes. way that, like, even Castlevania is over on Netflix. Like, it still gets mentioned. Legacy of Kane doesn't get anything. No, that's true. Yeah, like, I feel like there's such that sort of cult following around it. But yeah, it sort of hasn't translated in the same way that a, a few mm. other franchises from that. And obviously, Castlevania probably precedes it by a little bit. But you know what I mean? From, like, that time mm-hmm. it's just sort of it doesn't deserve to stay dead scott hilford no. is what i'm trying to say there and um, for me <laughs> i think i don't think beyond good and evil is ever coming out <laughs> that game just cancel it man get rid of it but they, they got the remake coming out soon which oh, usually they only do that to remind you of the future one oh, there's just no way man <laughs> there is no way like if you couldn't cancel skull and bones because you allegedly had a, an agreement with the singapore government it makes me think which government do you have an agreement with to keep beyond good and evil going because i don't understand why that is has not been cancelled when was that thing first announced like 2008 or something uh oh and evil 2 was yeah very was very first mentioned Uh, well the original 2004 and i think it was an an e3 2007 2008 when they said they were doing a sequel yeah and it went away for like 10 years and then it was mentioned during the vivendi takeover when they had to they had to say they had all these projects in the works to not get taken over so they revitalized it and then uh, was it? It wasn't Patrice Desley. Um, I forget the name of the dude, the no, the creator of Rayman, the creator of Beyond Good and Evil, who um, who left Ubisoft, and um, he's not even involved in the sequel anymore. Yeah, and it's like what even is this? That game's been in development for literally half my life. You know what I mean? I don't ever <laughs> expect to see it coming out in my lifetime, and let's just call it quits at this point. You yeah. know, I, I often think that at a certain point, like the fan base for that sequel has just kind of gone. You've missed the moment. Like, you could make Beyond Good and Evil 2 a thing mm. if you tried really hard and had an excellent game, but no one's clamoring it, clamoring for it, I don't think, in the same way that they were in the late 2000s. You know what I mean? Like, no. we, so much time has passed since then that I just think... I, I can't see that game ever coming out. One that I would like to resurrect, though, is a recent one. It's The Last of Us Factions. I just would oh, like course, to have yeah. played whatever they had and made so far. I loved mm-hmm. the multiplayer 
factions from The Last of Us 1, and as you know, I'm a huge fan of the gameplay from The Last of Us 2, so even if they didn't finish it, like, even if they could have just cut up the map that they made and, you know, made a regular multiplayer mode, I just want to play... <laughs> I know it might sound sacrilegious, I just want to play multiplayer Last of Us because I thought that was right. such an underrated um, thing that we got to experience. And the fact that they didn't remake the original factions for the part one um, redo now stings mm. even more because it just means that part of the Last of Us's history is kind of dead. Well, it was like a weird thing where they were like, yeah, Last of Us Factions, the PS3 one, was awesome. I really liked that as well. Like a big part of that at the time, or I guess when people think about it, um, is the social media crossover because way more people were on Facebook or whatever back then. So then your actual friends list were the people that were being mentioned in the game because it would all sync over. And I guess they couldn't necessarily make that work now. Um, but yeah, like it's a, I liked the gameplay enough of that back in the day. I think that the um, no return mode is a nice little nod to what that kind of feels like, like a different yeah. style of Last of Us combat. Um, but the idea of doing multiplayer stuff stuff i just that i guess that is just done for now but it's like naughty dog i was just thinking like naughty dog low-key do nice little multiplayer modes i really liked uncharted 2 and 3's multiplayer uncharted 4 brought all those weird special powers in that was not fully what i was there for um but the idea of like as in uncharted's case like a, a um, 3d platformer with guns as yes. a multiplayer game is cool like getting the drop on someone by going around them and climbing up and stuff it's like i want more of that more traversal in shooters like you don't really get that very much unless it's like titanfall you're running on the walls or something and uh, i guess the finals but you still have to like detonate the bring someone down you're not really able to climb around as much as you would want to yeah um but yeah question from ben petit who says what is the longest amount of time you've invested in a game before giving up on it it took me 70 <laughs> hours into dragon quest 11 to realize i was wasting my time also steve says gentlemen i've reached a thousand plus hours in elden ring i regret nothing game rules have <laughs> had the same experience i just wow. thought we about our our time uh, my go-to for anything that i put the most time into and still didn't finish is persona 5 um, that's a, I'm like 90 plus hours it just won't end I've been playing it since 2017 Dude, there's been three generations of what culture presenters since then I can't finish it you've been playing that literally since I started working for this company it was one of the <laughs> first games you were playing and you were telling yeah. me how you played like 60 or 70 hours back then that is Ugh. hilarious that spanned my entire 10 year at this company that I reinstall it every now and then and be like I'll do a little bit more maybe I'll finish it I'll do a little bit more I love, I love everything about it other than how bad paced it is and i just i can't help but compare it to persona 4 which had just a way better story and it's like persona 4, i'm not going to go on about it i've done it for how long seven years but i just i'm i'm at some i'm in a space station near the end and then when i look at the level list i'm not actually near the end and i'm like 90 hours and i'm like oh just let it be over you know for me every time i put that amount of time into a game i always eventually do go back and finish it so i don't think i have one that i've just outright abandoned i have a few that i've begrudgingly finished assassin's creed valhalla <laughs> definitely is up there i remember days playing... gone was one of your big ones that's it man i think valhalla just pips it to the post because that was about 70 mm. hours and then i thought i want this to be over but i can't invest this amount of time and just call it quits so i begrudgingly got to the end of that game <laughs> um there was another was, one that um... i was just thinking of as well that I've i remember you stopping playing far cry 6 i think but i didn't know how much time you put into that yeah that's actually one that i have just abandoned good point i think yeah <laughs> Um, actually, there, no, 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 you've sparked a memory there. There are a few Ubisoft ones that I just did call it quits on. After about 15 or 20 hours, um, Far Cry 6, that was about 15 hours that I just thought, I can't, 
I, I, yeah. I deserve more than this. My time is worth more. <laughs> um, so I had to trade that in to get it away from me. Um, Watch Dogs 2 I abandoned, but not because I hated right. it. I really enjoyed that game. It was just a case of I must have put it down over a Christmas period or something and just never got back to it. I've always wanted to mm. go back and finish that game because I was right at the end. Mm. Um, there is another... Oh, Dragon Age Inquisition. Dragon oh, Age Inquisition show, yeah. was one that I put, again, about 70, 80 hours in, didn't mm. finish, dropped it for about six months and then eventually thought, I need to see this out. I need to see what happens at the end. So <laughs> I always have this... this Perhaps stupid anecdote from that game where in a game called Dragon Age uh, Inquisition, I killed a single dragon. I had one dragon fight <laughs> and then I didn't do any of that extra stuff. So I just, there was a certain point in that game, even though, again, I quite liked it. I just wanted to get it over. Yeah, I used to have that where I, I wanted to make sure every single thing was done. I'm still trying to finish as many games as possible, but there are some things like you have with Far Cry or Ubisoft stuff where you're just too aware of the design. You're too aware of how much your time is being manipulated. And over time, as you get older, your time is... I'm not saying your time is worth less when you're younger, but you're more aware of the amount of things you could be doing. Um, and I think at some point, I just had to be like, nah, this is I, I can do a million other things. I can go for a walk. I can do anything at all. Other than this, and uh, I think it sometimes gets a, it's easier to break away. It just, it's healthier. We talked about health before. Yeah. It's healthier to break away from something that is just a spreadsheet of game loops, where it's just, if it's spreadsheet game design, get it in the bin. Yeah, unless I you're agree. specifically enjoying it. Um, question from Coach Marv, who says, A yearly quota of games, which is smaller than ideal, but ensures 99% are great quality and as advertised day one, or as it is today with endless releases, but no game is ever patched and stays as it is from day one. Quantity versus <laughs> supposedly guaranteed quality, which would you prefer? Um, oh, quality, man. Got to be quality. Like <laughs> yeah, As much as I loved something like Jedi Survivor last year, I don't want a year full of Jedi Survivors that are great <laughs> games, but that don't work. So, mm -hmm. and, and to be honest, you know, we've, we've talked about this again before, but in terms of game length these days, I could take fewer games. You know, I'm yeah. actually really enjoying that January and February, for me at least, doesn't have that many big releases, so I get to play Baldur's Gate 3 without the pressure <laughs> of knowing that there's another five games around the corner. You know what I mean? I've got plenty of games to get through. Knock on your window last night with another copy of Prince of Persia, but you didn't answer. I don't. I, how many more nights can I try this? Prince of Persia Lost Crown. Sorry, mate. Right I've got um, Avatar Frontiers of Pandora to play next. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> You'll uh... have to speak up. I'm playing Avatar Frontiers <laughs> of Pandora. Well, that's yeah, it. Yeah, I think I've, I've, I've got Avatar literally waiting to play, which I genuinely am excited about. I've got Mortal Kombat One in my cupboard. Uh, oh God. To to jump into as well. So I, I'd take a little a little spread out calendar personally. Which is, um, uh, yeah, I would, uh, as my answer to the question, I would take the quality thing. My business, bra cynical brain goes to the fact that most of the studios would then have to ensure that the uh, the quarter of games they are releasing would be stuffed full of monetization and predatory stuff and everything else to recoup the funds necessary to do that. However, you would hope there would be some sort of reckoning where the average amount of, the amount of money you can spend on a game gets brought down so you can actually fulfill that stuff. But you'd never get that because they can't just be happy. They've got to keep growing. They've yeah. got to keep doing more. Make the numbers go up. We can't just make video games. I would still take quality overall though. My thing with um, all the games that are coming out is uh, I've got Prince of Persia right now which I'm trying to squeeze in the next few days then Yak then Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth is out which wow. is going to be a hundred plus hour game so I'll do that and then I've got Final Fantasy 7 Rebirth which will be straight after that it's like they're all like days and weeks apart so I I'm back in it. This is funny because it's kind of like the inverse of 2023 for us where I had like a bunch of games where I was just telling you, you know, Scott, I've been up all night, this game is amazing, it's five star, and you were like, 
yeah, it's all right. I'm not too asked about it. Um, <laughs> I'll wait for something that engages me. We've kind of done that this year where mm. you've got Prince of Persia, you've got like a dragon, like you said, and then, of course, I'll be playing Final Fantasy, but you've, you've got off to quite a good start, actually, with those games in mind. Honestly, do I mean, we tried to, and I made you do a video on Prince of Persia, because I, like, I need someone to just sit with me and just talk about how awesome Prince of Persia is. That game is beautiful. It even runs really well on the Switch. It's got like it's got cross um, cross saves. Now. I almost bought another copy of it. I bought the deluxe edition <laughs> on Switch because I was like, "Look, Ubisoft, I'm going to support the good stuff." Here's fi- here's fifty English pounds towards this game. And then for a second, when it said it had crossplay, I was like, "Do I get it on PS5 as well? And I can <laughs> play it on the train, and I can come home, and I can keep going on the PS5." And they'll have they'll have a hundred pounds towards this beautiful endeavor. But um, I'm going to see how it's selling. If it needs a boost in the sales once they reveal the weekend numbers, then maybe I'll blow my wage on it. I'll get you a copy. I don't care. Yeah. I'll give it a, this game. a cheeky uh, Tailford 50, as it's, <laughs> as it's known around these parts. <laughs> the Tail 50, we'll see how it goes. Uh, final question from John T. Bagend, possibly the best name we've ever had on the podcast, <laughs> John Tay, who says, I'd love to get your thoughts in games adapted from movies or TV. Do you think these can ever be done exceptionally well? I'm currently riding the new indie game hype. Now, I thought I'd put this in here because me and you had a hilarious exchange after the Xbox Direct last night. And I thought we'd talk a little bit about the Indiana Jones game. Bit of a bit of a mixed response, mostly positive online, but Listen, that did not involve Josh Brown. If I speak, I am in big trouble, is all I will say about <laughs> the Indiana Jones game. No, it's um I, yeah, it's a real mixed bag for me. I was really down on it, truth be told, and mm. I don't like to be down on games, as you know, but watching the reveal for that, I just I felt very cynical about it. Like I, right. I thought there were parts of it that looked really interesting. I like the mechanics that they're implementing with the whip. I thought that did look really cool. You know, the locations look really nice. But just the way they were talking about it, you know, when they were selling us, in my opinion, on brand new gaming features like the ability to either stealth your way through a level or <laughs> fight your way through a level, I just thought... That was a selling point of Wolfenstein The New Order in 2014. Like, is that. The self was pretty crap in that game. It was, yeah. (laughs) And I was just thinking, like, is that all we've got this time around, you know? I thought visually. Um, the the art design of it didn't do much for me personally. I don't. I know they're not going necessarily for photo realism. I don't think it looks like um, the Wolfenstein engine, just like with a few tweaks. But I thought the faces looked a little bit off. I just didn't think it looked that next gen to me personally. Um, And it just, yeah, it had a certain clunkiness to it that made me wonder how it's going to play because I liked, you know, I I, I loved uh, the two Wolfenstein games that came out and I loved the uh, visceral nature of them. But as shooters, I never actually thought they struck the balance between playing to the game's strengths. Like, I'd, mm. I'd almost, I'm not the only person to say this, but I almost wanted to play those games like they were Doom. You know what I mean? Because you get the ability yes. to, like, dual-wield shotguns, but you're so fragile that the balance was never quite there. So mm. I'm interested how they handle um, Indiana Jones, especially the switch between third-person and first-person. Like, I'm fine with it being first-person, but yeah, the concessions they're making to, like, pull the camera out while he's climbing slowly up a drain pipe like that doesn't do anything for me that (laughs) is not working for me i the thing is i love a first and third person hybrid when it's done well and i think that coupled with um solid cutscene direction and in this case it's troy baker's harrison ford's like indiana jones 
we'll get back to him in a sec. Yeah. Um, there's a w- I, I, I came away from this very, very like happy enough, but I was expecting nothing. I'm not necessarily an Indiana Jones fan. I didn't really grow up with them. Well, I didn't grow up with the movies. Um, I didn't really love them when I finally got around to watching them as I was a bit older. Um, my, my Indiana Jones is The Mummy. I like The Mummy 1 and 2. <laughs> yes, so, yeah. My Indiana Jones is um, that Brandon Fraser's character, Brendan Fraser's character, who I forget the name of now, but um, I liked him a lot. And so, like, I didn't really have the affiliation, the affinity for um, the IP. And so I kind of went into this going, like, well, it's, it's Todd Howard's idea. Apparently he went to Machine Games and said, I'd love to make an Indiana Jones game. I do love the Wolfenstein games, like you said. Um, however, in Wolfie 2, I ended up knocking the difficulty down because it just felt so completely unfair. Like, all these, like... It just felt like you were being hit regardless of whether you were in cover or not. And I was like, I just want to be this Nazi murdering machine for a while. I'll just knock it down onto easy for a bit. And I had a blast with it. I think the best things in Wolfie 2 are um, the cutscenes, the messaging, the thematics, the the way it interrogates um, parts of America's history and everything or American mentalities. And uh, and so I went into Indiana Jones going like, this is like a weird little fun side thing where you can take the Nazi killing and you can apply it to one of the big biggest Nazi killing franchises ever and just kind of have fun with it. And I quite liked how much of like a throwback it was to like a bygone era in terms of we're doing away with the new age monetary, you know, we're not worrying about rendering every little time the iris moves in the eye because there's a light change in the scene. I just want to punch some dudes and shoot them and play as a dude that looks like Harrison Ford. Um, and sounds like him too, I would have said. But mm, I well, I'll get to that in a second. I want to touch on what you just <laughs> said there because, yeah, I, I can totally see that. And, you know, I, it's on Game Pass, so of course I'll jump in. I guess the only, well, I guess my biggest criticism is that if I didn't know it was Machine Games making it, I'd have I'd have been even harsher on that trailer. You know what I mean? It's only right. kind of through the goodwill that they've earned that I'm more optimistic than I perhaps would have been because I do, like I echo what you said there, characterization across those two Wolfenstein games were, were great. The cutscene direction, excellent. You know, um, the pathos they managed to imbue into that. Um, world was great. The world building itself and art direction, awesome. I didn't get that from this trailer, but it's very early days. I liked mm. the uh, the idea of the villain, you know, like the, the opening scene where uh, Indiana Jones is like buried in the sand and he's getting talked at. I thought, right, okay, that looks very Indiana Jones in terms of tone and, you know, presentation and whatnot. But mm-hmm. yeah, going Tony back Todd's to... Tony Todd's in it as well. It's Tony like Todd! playing like a good looking character, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Tony Todd, a pop for him. I'm ex- more excited <laughs> for him than I am Troy Baker, by the way. Oh. And this so. was maybe, I keep saying this is maybe my biggest criticism. I have a lot of criticisms of the game is the point. <laughs> Just go for it, mate. But when, you know, I heard the voice actor for Indy, I thought, you're trying so hard to do a Harrison Ford impression and nail it that you're forgetting to emote or bring any charisma right. to the role. So on the surface, yeah, it sounds pretty good as Harrison Ford, but where's the energy? Where's the, where's the mm. life to it? So when you told me, actually, I didn't even know this, you messaged me saying, like, that's Troy Baker. I I couldn't believe it. Again, early days, (laughs) but I couldn't believe that was Troy Baker doing that because I just thought, Mm. where's where's the soul of it? I didn't get that from the first trailer, but again, I'm being very nitpicky, very harsh about it. It is only one trailer. We've got so many more reveals to go. I might and hope... Um, to be won round by it by the end because mm. I do want this game to be great. You never want a game to be bad, but yeah, if we're talking pure good, good instinct, first impressions, 
it's made me wary. <laughs> <laughs> I think for mine it was like, like I said, I went in with zero expectations. Like I don't care about indie and like I love the Wolfie games. I keep calling them Wolfie games because it's easy and saying the Wolfenstein, the new Colossus every time. Um, I had a lot of fun with their game engines and I remember thinking um, that like if you just kind of unleash this a little bit and just kind of have like a fun, um, you know, a fun romp through various locations, then that'll be enough. And um, this is a weird thing because I don't necessarily think you're saying this, but I think there is a conversation on the idea of say you're a game studio and you're making a new game and you just, you aren't necessarily aiming for a specific era in gaming, but there is an assumption that if it can't hang with the Red Dead 2s, the Last of Us's, the, the upper echelon of what gaming can be, then it's not good enough. Like, I think there's a, like, the, I was messaging you about, we had this a, a little while ago, I can't think which game came out, and it was like, oh, it just looks like a PS2 platformer. And I was like, yeah, one of the one of the greatest one one of the greatest eras in gaming history. And two, that's completely fine to aim for that. Yeah, like we don't really have a go at like when a movie releases in black and white. It's a specific aesthetic choice, or like if a certain budget is attached to a game. Like to me, if I'm thinking of gaming as an art form, I'm thinking of the entirety of like forty plus years of video games. Then I'm going to be just as excited or curious about something that is aiming to be a throwback to an Atari game from the seventies as I am spending your entire budget rendering a face and doing Hellblade two. Like I'm there for the whole thing, and I don't necessarily. I'm not again. I'm not saying you're saying this. You're not saying this. But I think that's an interesting conversation because I don't think we can hit those highs every time, or maybe ever. Rock Red Dead Two felt like such an anomaly. Yeah. And like as is clear from the budgets on the Sony side, I think they are increasingly um, anomalous too. Like um, being able to get lifelike face, like facial animation and innovative gameplay mechanics and an open world or whatever it is. Um, it just feels like overall where like. Uh, petering out or whatever the word is like becoming more smooth with like the idea of like we're hitting bars in gaming as opposed to the same highest bar over and over and over again and I don't necessarily mind a a team doing like a what we would call an old school 360 era game that just is the game I'm I'm with you apart from where you would place Indiana Jones from what we've seen mm. so far. So I'm I'm totally with you, man. Like, I love my throwback games. I did a whole editorial on Wanted Dead, and that is very much a, a love letter <laughs> yeah. to those 360 games that you mentioned explicitly. You know, Canaan Bridge of Spirits, I know you really enjoyed. That was that's what it was referenced as, like, a, yeah. as it's just a PS2 platformer, but that's cool to have back, you know? Um, yeah. the, the issue I have with what I've seen of Indiana Jones is that it's sort of in a nostalgia no man's land. Like if it was going for a 360 throwback, I would be there for it because we don't really get those anymore. My issue is that it's more of a PS4 throwback in terms of the mechanics that they were showing off. Like I said, that combination of stealth and action and whatever. Like to me, it's it doesn't seem like an intentional throwback decision because that was what defined the last Wolfenstein game and the one before mm-hmm. that. It just seems like a continuation of that to me in a lack of innovation in that regard, rather than a conscious decision to go, okay, we're not going to try to chase trends or chase Red Dead. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to go back to the 360 era, the PS2 era, and see what we can mine in an old school way. It just seems mm-hmm. um, dated in an unintentional way to me. Mm-hmm. No, I, yeah, I can see that. I think, like, from what they showed off, other than the whip stuff, it isn't very innovative. And even the, the whip things, like, we've, we've seen games do that, you know, before. Um, yeah, I guess I'm curious to see, like, this was their first foot forward. The thing overall is that it makes me think of the Todd Howard approach because it has a few things in common with Starfield in terms of being a very economical game um, in the new world where we kind of expect first-party stuff to be AAA quality and then we expect that AAA bar to be the Naughty Dog quality or the Rockstar quality. And I just wonder, because Starfield was so assumedly intentionally um, economical in its design and was so, like, 
you can argue like you know um, hobbled by its use of the the engine it was on and like loading in between every instance of anything even when you're docking a ship or something I always kind of wondered how intentional that was and then if you're Todd Howard going like well I want to make an Indiana Jones game and other than the movie there's not really like a massive amount of hype for it yeah. the indie IP is pretty dead um, how do I get this over the finish line and then the conversations that happen and be like okay we're going to kind of even that, that stealth move when you were mentioning the stealth in the new Indiana Jones when he throws the like the hammer at the dude it looks identical to the stealth move let's say in, in Wolfenstein exactly right it's yeah. not like a full animation it's just like you know they're going to react when they get hit it's, it's not like a canned thing um, and so I was just like, okay, how much of this is a carryover? Even the bit when he grabs the dude and punches him is straight out of Chronicles of Riddick. Like, there's there's things that this dev team have worked on in the past that I can kind of see the parts being put together. Um, but at the same time, the core of it is a bunch of people who want to make this. Yeah. And I think that that for me is the is the big takeaway. I was like, you guys had fun making this, um, and you're just kind of getting it over the finish line. And that's to me that like, I'm not saying you're not. That's not enough for you, but that is just by far enough for me. Um, and it is quite rough around the edges, but. Um, it's kind of, there's a weird innocence to it in a way where like mm. this is Xbox first party. Like yeah. you look at how much Sony are like blowing the doors off and spending almost half a billion on Spider-Man. And it's like over on the Xbox side, they've got Game Pass. They announced that it's now 15% of their bottom line. Um, over 30 million people have Game Pass. And that means you get a bigger variety of games, but the overall like production level is lower. And is that enough? And it's like, I'm just so curious where this shakes out. Hi-Fi Rush was a good taste of it. And I'm just like, this is more in that vein to me. But um, you almost have to sacrifice a lot of polish for that. That's true. There's a weird thing to it. You know what? I, I, I totally see that side of it. And I do think, you know, making a $300 million game, $200 million game, and then putting out putting it out day one in Game Pass just can't be sustainable, even if you no. are Microsoft and you have endless amounts of money. Like, that can't last forever at all, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm absolutely fine. Like, you are, you know, scaling things back and having a, mm-hmm. a more regular release schedule that, yeah, doesn't aim for a Naughty Dog level of quality or detail or a Rockstar level of detail. My only holdout with Indiana Jones on, like, a bigger scale is... Does the team want to make it? You said there that you felt mm. there was a lot of passion in it. And I definitely get that from Todd Howard. I don't doubt that yeah. Todd Howard um, absolutely has been dreaming of this game for <laughs> years and decades, you know? But is Machine Games the right pick for it? Like, I know when they made the past two Wolfenstein games, you could tell their heart was in it. It was mm. over every detail. You could tell that they were really dedicated to what they were bringing to life. Again, it's one trailer. I don't know yet, but I need to be convinced that they are passionate about Indiana Jones and haven't just been contracted to make an Indiana Jones game like how Square Enix would just contracted out an Avengers game. And you could tell yeah, from that yeah. that, you know, they obviously, I'm sure they had a bunch of people on that team who were passionate about the Avengers, but it didn't feel like it was the game they were dying to make mm. in the same way that it felt like Insomniac was dying to make a Spider-Man game. And I just wonder about that with Indiana Jones because that mm. element of soul, that would get me in over the uh, criticisms that I have. But I again, I kind of need to be convinced of it. And I don't, and I don't like being so down on a game, but I, I need to see more, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, I think from the passion side, like, I think for me it was just like you could tell, I thought you could tell that they cared about this fun little endeavor they were doing because it's not what anyone expected from Machine Games. Everyone expected Wolfenstein 3. Um, and it is an interesting thing when you look at their previous track record. And you can just imagine Todd Howard playing Wolfenstein 1 or 2 and being like, well, this reminds me of Indiana Jones. I'm killing a lot of Nazis. Wouldn't it be cool if we did an Indiana Jones game with this shooting model? And that's ostensibly what they've done. And then the money goes into getting Harrison Ford's likeness um, and, and kind of just go from there. And it's like, yeah, that idea of like how much 
How would would machine games have ever arrived at this conclusion without Todd Howard yeah. steering the ship a bit? Like probably not, or assumedly not. Um, and did that affect Wolfenstein Three? I mean, the weird thing with Wolfenstein's development over the timeline of those games is that we got that Youngblood game, yeah. where it was like an attempt at making that co-op thing. There was the VR spin-off thing as well, which I think is a VR version of Youngblood. Um, and it's like, did they know what they would what they were going to aim for in terms of like, okay, we're passionate to make this next step anyway? Um, and how much, yeah, how much has been course corrected or, or or taken off course by Todd Howard? Because um, he is kind of the face and the voice of this thing, even though they had the other dude like leading the um, the the piece during the direct. Like it is, it's Todd Howard's vision apparently from everything else that we've talked about. I did, um, yeah, yeah, I did laugh. You know, obviously, game, uh, video game development isn't this simplistic, but I, t- I did laugh at Tom Ho- uh, Todd Howard being like, "This is my dream game. I'm not going to get my studio to make it. I'm going to like, contract <laughs> it out to another studio that like might need a game, but I, I I'm not bringing it in house. You know, I'm just going to work on it with someone else, and it's it's there." It's because he knows that Bethesda could not make that. No, they like, definitely he, like, couldn't, to be fair. No, they would do some weird thing where you load every time you pick up a different whip or something, <laughs> or you like load every little uh, Nazi stronghold you want to go into or something. But um, yeah, a fascinating thing. I never, I, I guess I never thought of Indiana Jones as this tip of the spear for the new generation of Xbox. I did think of that as Starfield, and me and you loved our time with Starfield. I still yeah. treasure that game and the time I had with it, even though I get the, the criticisms of it. Um, but still, it was like Indiana Jones just always kind of felt like this fun little almost side project that we've got one of our first party teams to do and now that Todd Howard's on board entirely legally I guess he's you know they got acquired a few years ago then it's just something he's wanted to put together and we're just we, we can do that because we have all this game pass revenue and lord knows we have no idea what we're doing with everything else because Perfect Dark's <laughs> on fire so uh, and Fable's somewhere apparently and so um, yeah it was, it was a strange overall direct tell you what we actually never did go on I guess this kind of factors in um, but we never actually answered uh, John Tay's question about do we think that um, adaptations can be done exceptionally <laughs> well uh, which kind of factors into the whole thing it's like the uh, the indie ip there's a way to distill that down into harrison ford likeness using a whip punching nazis and like it has a general swashbuckling kind of tail that bit when they cut in the trailer to him on the plane um shooting with the big minigun thing or the tommy gun thing and then jumping between plane wings um that feels like a new age indie thing where he does really super heroic stuff yeah but um, I think it can be done well if you get to the essence of the IP. I think it just depends whether it feels like it's tacked on or not, which I guess in this case, it does feel like they wanted to make a, a fun thing. It's set between Raiders and... Uh, it's set between the first and second movie or something. Yeah, the f- yeah well, the- yeah, Temple of Doom was the prequel, wasn't it? So I think it's set between Last sure. Crusade and Raiders. Yeah, but yeah. I've only seen... Thing. What's the one where he punches the man and he falls out the window in a plane? Uh, I, I, whatever that is, I've seen that one. I don't know. I actually can't, I don't remember. Even I can't recall I, myself. I'm not an indie, not an indies man, but <laughs> I, uh, I remember seeing some bit where he punches a man in like a in a room full of tables. He's got a white suit on, and he, I think he punches him out of a window. Punches a lot of people in those. He movies, does punch so. a lot of people, and he punches yeah. a lot of people out of windows. He's always jumping in and out of windows. That guy. <laughs> no, I've not seen the films in uh, ages. To be fair, I watched mm. Dial of Destiny over the Christmas period, but I've actually oh not gone back to the first four. In probably a decade, in a, in a long, long mm. time. So yeah, I'm similar to you. Where indie isn't my thing, but if you followed our news videos, you know I was actually quite excited to see what they mm. had accomplished with the IP. But yeah, going back to what you said in the question about whether like adaptations can be done well, I I would agree mm. with what you were saying about as long as they find the essence of what made the original so good, I think you absolutely can do a good adaptation. To me, the worst adaptations are just when they pull the iconography and that's it, you know? So the worst case Mm. scenario would be Indiana Jones, them going Harrison Ford's likeness, swashbuckling adventure, whip, punching Nazis, 
and that's all you get. It's just like, yeah. they're, they're the tropes, we're bringing them in, we're playing the hits, but we don't know mm-hmm. fundamentally what makes the franchise work. Not saying that's the case here, just I'm saying, mm-hmm. like, you know, that would be the worst case scenario. Um, whereas adaptations of the past, kind of like, again, I go back to Spider-Man, you know, if I knew how much of a unique take Insomniac was putting on Spider-Man before it launched, I might mm-hmm. have been worried because I would be maybe thinking, oh, you're going to get away from what makes the franchise great or whatever. Mm. But seeing that in practice, I thought, oh, no, you've actually done something different here and something new. You've understood the characters enough to push mm. them in new directions almost. So I'm not someone who needs everything to be... Um, exact in an adaptation i don't need the actors to look the same or the plot points to be exactly the same or anything like that but as long as whoever's making the thing understands the soul of the thing then i think it can be done well yeah man and the thing is like in terms of adapting from movies or tv it's like how much of a tapestry was there to pull from anyway does it feel like a complete story what are you actually able to tag on my mind when you were talking about oh we were in the in general talking about this um remind, i was thinking of the scarface game yeah which like if they announced that now that the fundamental premise of the scarface game is that he just didn't die at the end of the movie which is like obviously a fundamental part of that story um and in the game he just gets back up again he's all his body's all riddled with bullets and he's covered in blood and he just gets back up he's like hey i'm gonna get my revenge and then <laughs> and then the game is just that but I, I loved that game at the time mainly because it has a swear button which you can just jam on as much as you want um, and it was really really fun and so it's like there's maybe ways to do it if you're intentional about how, how campy you're being about the premise but for the most part yeah it has to get to the soul of it there's nothing about the Scarface game that was about the, the ultimately the soul of the Scarface movie in terms of the downfall of um, that character it was just let's just do a GTA style thing with, with the Miami uh, with an 80s soundtrack and put it in Miami but um, yeah, I think it's like there's a way to get to the, the heart of it. I'm such a casual Indiana Jones fan to bring it full circle that this works with like when I think of what I would want from an Indiana Jones game. Um, it pretty much is this. I, I agree with the people who are, well, I, I don't, the people who are annoyed or are pretty sad that it's in first person. Hmm. Um, I like the hybrid thing because it always reminds me of Rainbow Six Vegas or something like that. Um, and I think there's a way to make that immersive and like, you know, you you know, that's your character in the cutscenes kind of thing. Um, and you get to be them again. I, w- I would always take third over first overall. But I think um, in terms of the indie hype and everything, um, it works for me. Like, and I, I wonder if that's just what they're skewing for. Like in Indiana Jones 101, like there's a reason they de-aged him again in the most recent movie. Yeah. It's like we're trying to get back to that era. I think it, I think the first person also works to immediately dodge the bullet of comparisons to Tomb Raider and Uncharted as well. Mm, if yeah. it was third person, um, because Uncharted and Tomb Raider both crib, you know, heavily oh, yeah, from taking inspiration from indie itself, like, I think you would, you know, come up with direct comparisons, whereas, I don't know, first person and third person hybrid gameplay allows it, in my eyes, to differentiate it enough from those franchises to not be constantly compared to Sony's, you know, one of Sony's biggest franchises. Mm. And that has to be um, a win for the marketing and from the developers to not have that kind of constant pressure when they just want to make their own thing, but everyone's constantly comparing it to these other big franchises. No, totally. I mean, I kind of like would have wanted them to steer into that. Like, it's like that thing of like, you, you've got the the cultural cachet to be like, this is the original one of those games. I don't know how you necessarily phrase it. Um, and you don't need to be like, all oh, these little imitators kind of thing. But there is a way to be in that space. And um, it's kind of a double-edged sword, the thing that you just described, because now they're fundamentally not part of that. Yeah, like, they're not true. alongside Lara Croft and, and Nathan Drake um, or the feel of those games. And now they have to try and 
like mimic the um, the feel of going on an adventure and exploring and puzzle solving and combat and everything, and um, and it's like a light-hearted swashbuckling adventure, and then do that in first person, which is in itself not necessarily that well-worn ground. Um, so it's like it'll either work in their favor, or, or it'll be it'll be distinguishable, or it'll be a thing where it's like. You know, we we prefer this this style of game in the in a in a Tomb Raider or an Uncharted sense. Good point, man. Good point. I think you know the, the the conclusion I've kind of come to after everything you've just said and everything I've just said and the question, the great question is: mm. sack off Indiana Jones, get the mummy, <laughs> the game into production, get Brendan Fraser's likeness, oh. get the actors back, and just do it with the mummy instead. Yeah, yeah. Just let me let me play Zimotep again. That was in the, uh, the the second Mummy game. That thing was awesome. Um, we will wrap the Untitled Banter podcast now, though. The UBP, the UBP, the, the UBP. I've been Scott Tilford. That's been Josh Brown. Always a pleasure, Scott Tilford. Always a pleasure to be heard by all of you. Thank you to everyone for sending in various questions and everything. You're all bloody lovely, and we'll you catch are. you very soon. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.